Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. It was a roller coaster week in American presidential politics. After Senator Bernie Sanders boycotted AIPAC and former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg addressed the crowd in person, former Vice President Joe Biden dominated on Super Tuesday, winning primaries in Alabama, North Carolina, Texas, and Elizabeth Warren's home state of Massachusetts. Sanders, not surprisingly, won Vermont, as well as Utah and Colorado. But at the time we recorded this segment on Wednesday, votes were still being counted in Maine and California, and Bloomberg had just announced he was dropping out. Here to give us a view from the ground is Ron Campius, Washington Bureau Chief for Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell us, you were on the ground at APAC earlier this week. Tell us what you observed in terms of how the audience received the different candidates who spoke either live or via video. It was complicated. There was a sharper enthusiasm for Republicans, in part because, you know, the narrative that was generated last week when Bernie Sanders said he wouldn't go to the uh, conference, he was boycotting the conference because he called it a platform for bigotry, and Elizabeth Warren also said she wouldn't go, although she didn't elucidate why exactly, Mm -hmm. was that um, the Democrats are drifting away from the traditional APAC pro-Israel position. And that's changed in the last few days. It shows how things have changed so rapidly. But uh, Bernie Sanders was the frontrunner last week, and it looked like he might be the nominee. And so you had a conference filled with people who were very wary of that kind of Democrat. I, you know, if APAC had had its conference starting this coming Sunday, you might have had a different type of thing. So, mm. you know, one of the more notable moments was when a Republican strategist who was speaking on a panel was asked to make his predictions at the end of the panel, which they always do at APAC. He said, I predict Nancy Pelosi won't be speaker on January the 1st. And there were cheers. And Nancy Pelosi is somebody who's close to APAC. She has good friends who are in APAC's leadership. And I thought that that was kind of remarkable. So why do you think that that generated cheers? Well, like I said, I think it's because, you know, if you were in last week's mindset, and like mindsets now change from week to week the way they used to change from year to year. But the, you know, the Democratic Party was going to be led by Bernie Sanders, who called APAC a platform for bigotry, who has said he would condition aid to Israel and whether Israel complies with U.S. policy regarding the West Bank and other issues. And so, you know, there were people who really, like, felt, I guess, unleashed because the APAC discourages that kind of thing. They really do. The the leadership, that is, discourages cheering anybody who attacks somebody in another political party. But I think the grassroots felt like they could unleash, like, some of their inner frustrations with uh, what's been going on with the Democrats over the last year. Now, today, we have Joe Biden, who gave a well-received talk at APAC, and who incidentally undercut Bernie Sanders' point. Bernie Sanders said it was useless to try and reach out to a platform like APAC. That was the, you know, that was the insinuation in his statement. Biden spoke, and he and he criticized with very precise specifics. He criticized Israel settlement policy, particularly plans to uh, settle in the E1 corridor between Maladomim and. Uh, and the rest of the West Bank. Mm-hmm. And that drew some applause at APAC. So mm-hmm. it's not as if they, you know, it was a kind of a weird organization this week because it showed <laughs> that they were amenable to that kind of criticism as well. You weren't going to find anybody in APAC per se making that criticism. But here was a Democratic leader who could come and praise the U.S.-Israel relationship and say he would uphold it and continue aid, but also criticize Israel's settlement policy. And People were fine with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now let's talk about Bernie Sanders' decision not to go to APAC and the reason that he gave. I mean, he easily could have said, 
hey, it's Super Tuesday. I'm going to be a little busy. Um, and it's, this is certainly not the first APAC conference, nor is he the only candidate to skip APAC. So right. instead, he chooses to accuse them of being a platform for leaders who express bigotry. Why right. did he go there? Especially when it's so clear how important bipartisan support of Israel is, why did Sanders go there? I think he's just under pressure from certain elements in his party. He's attracting a groundswell of support from a sector of the American public that is hostile to Israel's government, hostile to Israel as is, you know, has been constituted for like at least 20 years since the collapse of Oslo and really feels that there needs to be more pressure on Israel. And I, I don't think it's, it's him, because a month ago when he was asked about it, he said, yeah, you know, I, if I was asked, I might go because it's a platform to make my position known. And that's more in line with what, how Sanders has behaved. He actually had a real clash with Elizabeth Warren a year ago because he agreed to do a Fox Town Hall and she declined to do so because she thought, thought that Fox was a platform for bigotry. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. frankly, if, you know, if you're going to do percentage, I mean, it's true, they, you know, the people who are criticizing APAC and calling for candidates to skip APAC were able to name a couple of people who are appearing this year and who appeared in last previous years. Well, I guess one could credibly call bigots, but percentage-wise, <laughs> there are probably more of them people you could call bigots appearing on Fox every day than there are in, at APAC's policy conference. Yeah. So it, 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 well, I think it was dissonant for a lot of people a lot of American Jews, even people who are critical of APAC and uh, of the American government, at least as far as the Israeli government, at least as far as one could see on uh, social media, were kind of unsettled by uh, Bernie's boycott. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the other candidates, or I should say just other politicians who were there at APAC. Vice President Mike Pence spoke to the crowd. I'm curious, since you were there on the ground, how was that received? And that was well received also. I mean, it was interesting because Mike Pence spoke called for four more years uh, for Donald Trump. And really, like, it's, it's bad form to uh, directly politic at an APAC conference, you know, to campaign, essentially. And yet he did. And that got big cheers. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, so did Mike Bloomberg, who's now dropped out of the race. And although Mike Bloomberg got plaudits for directly attacking Sanders, he also indirectly attacked Trump, saying that you needed a president that was able to unite, not divide, that would not cater to bigotries. And that was clearly referring to Trump, and that got sustained applause as well. Although I think Bloomberg, because he didn't name Trump and he didn't call for you know his own election or somebody else's election, he he stayed more within the the lines that Pence crossed. Mm-hmm. So now that Bloomberg has left the race, leaving Sanders, Biden, Warren. Uh, in the race. And Tulsi Gabbard, (laughs) don't forget. Oh, of course, sorry. So what do you foresee from your vantage point? How does Bloomberg's departure kind of change the equation? Or how could it? Uh, I don't, you know, there's no longer, it's it's now a Bernie and um, Biden race, first of all. There's no longer any moderates sucking away the vote from each other. And yet you do have Warren still in the race and she could damage uh, Bernie Sanders in the long run. It also means that Biden has said today, his staff have said today online, that they are going to throw their considerable weight behind uh, Biden now. And, um, and it's kind of a new wrinkle in the sense that Bloomberg always said that even if he was pushed out of the race, he would dedicate his resources to unseating uh, Donald Trump, to pushing Donald Trump out. But now he is doing the same, it would appear, to keep uh, Sanders from getting the nomination. Mm-hmm. And why is that? I think that Bloomberg genuinely sees... Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, Bloomberg and Sanders would have very, very real policy differences. Uh, they do have very real policy differences on the role of government in public life and how extensive it should be. You know, Sanders calls himself a democratic socialist. Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg, is very, very much a um, a capitalist. 
But beyond that, I mean, Bloomberg really, really, and, and he said this since 2016, since the Democratic Convention in 2016, he thinks that Donald Trump is unfit for office. And what was interesting is that Bloomberg said that even if Sanders didn't want his money directly, and he did not want his money directly, if Sanders became the nominee or becomes the nominee, he will still work to remove Trump from office. I think mm-hmm. that's his major uh, agenda. And he sees Biden as a better bet to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's fast forward to the conventions, the, the national conventions. In 2012, the delegates at the Democratic National Convention just booed any mention of Jerusalem. And in 2016, Bernie actually fought over including Israel on the platform, lost, but still put up a, a fight. And certainly we can expect the same this year, especially if he is the nominee. What do you foresee um, being the points of contention at the Democratic National Convention and similarly at the Republican National Convention? Well, I think the Democratic, yeah, I think Israel will be a contentious issue at the Democratic National Convention, although Bakari Sellers, who is an influential uh, former South Carolinian legislator, said at APAC he really didn't see a problem. He thought that the platform would be pro-Israel. But you've got a concerted effort by J Street to mention the occupation in the platform and criticize Israel's occupation in the platform. Uh, and J Street commands the loyalties of more than half of the Democratic caucus in both chambers in the House and the Senate, and remains very influential on that side. So I think there will be some altering in the platform. I'm not sure if Jerusalem will be in there. It's, it's interesting. I think what well, one thing that Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital has done, it's changed the, uh, the dialogue on that, in the sense that in 2012, there was a reluctance to recognize Israel as Jerusalem's capital in the platform, and eventually they did, as you pointed out. In 2020, I think there'll be more pressure to leave in recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, but perhaps recognizing it as also the capital of an independent Palestine, once and if that ever comes to be. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch. So the Republican convention, I think, will be uh, you know more or less conventional, uh, a love fest for Donald Trump. They've uh, actually shut down primaries in a few states. Uh, the, the Republican Party, they don't want you know any sign of dissent to come forward ahead of that convention. We saw how effectively they intimidated senators during the impeachment proceedings not to make a peep against Trump. So that, I think, is how the Republican convention is going to play out. Yeah. Speaking of Mr. Weld, Bill Weld, the one Republican politician who is challenging Trump, did anyone speak his name at APAC? I mean, you run in these circles covering these contests. Is anyone taking his name seriously at all? Yeah, he didn't even come up in APAC, and that's interesting because in his time, I think he was a fairly pro-Israel governor of Massachusetts. He led uh, trade delegations there. He said very positive things about Israel, but uh, it didn't come up. I don't think, you know, nobody expects him to win. The point with uh, Bill Weld is to show that there is more resistance to Trump among uh, Republicans than one might otherwise guess from the narrative that Trump and the Republican Party mm-hmm. is peddling. You know, he did that to a certain extent in New Hampshire, although it got buried, nobody paid attention where he got, uh, you know, Trump keeps on talking about his near 100% support. I think Weld got 8 or 9% of the uh, New Hampshire Republican primary vote, which is it's kind of interesting. There are that many people who are willing to vote against Trump, but otherwise, no, there was no mention. Okay. So let me ask you about the candidates that have already left the race, Uh, Mayor Pete and Mayor Bloomberg now, and Amy Klobuchar. 
tell me, what do you foresee their role being going forward, be it their support for the other candidates or maybe even their positions, possible positions in a Democratic administration? You know, I think that they all, you know, for strategic reasons, they were probably wise to uh, to quit when they did and throw their uh, support behind Biden. I don't see Bloomberg necessarily wanting a, a role in the in administration. You know, he sees himself as an executive, not as somebody who takes orders from somebody else. <laughs> but perhaps, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg is certainly, you know, 38, I think, and he has a, a long career ahead of him. Uh, I'm not sure Amy Klobuchar necessarily wants that, but uh, she does very well in the Senate. Her campaign was predicated on how much she gets done in the Senate, and she does. And maybe that's uh, the better place for her to stay. But uh, I'd expect Pete Buttigieg to, to probably want kind of uh, a secretary position, a cabinet position. I'm just not sure where that would be exactly, but probably having to do with uh, domestic policy, perhaps HUD or something. I don't know. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, Ron, thank you so much for your perspective and for being on the ground to cover all of this drama. And we look forward to having you on the show once again as the candidate list narrows down. Okay. That'll be great. All right. Take care. Israel has concluded its third election, but what that means and whether a fourth election will be necessary is still unknown. Here to walk us through the next possible scenarios is Tal Schneider, the award-winning chief political correspondent of the Israeli Daily Globes. Tal, welcome to People of the Pod. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's start by explaining what happened in this election, because it's never that simple. Prime Minister Netanyahu won, right? No, he did not win. <laughs> okay. Okay. So so walk our listeners through who got the most votes and just what the results from Monday's election actually tell us. Okay. In Israel, in order to win, you don't get to do that just an election night. Mm-hmm. In order to win, you have to form a government, which uh, this is something that Netanyahu is unable to do for twice this year and the third time since stuff as well. Mm. So we will be able to say a person won the election when he will be able to form a government. Right now, it seems that Netanyahu doesn't have enough mandates, enough state to form a government. Okay. Even within his personal achievement, which is generating more votes and kind of changing the trend from September when he had less votes. Oh. So this time around, he had more votes, more parliament seats, but not winning yet. Okay. All right. And why is that? Why does more seats not generate a victory for him? Okay. Because we have 120 seats in the Israeli Knesset. Mm-hmm. If you want to form a government, you need to hold 60 plus one. So it's a 61. You need at least 61 in order to form a government. And Netanyahu has managed to get the right-wing bloc in 58 seats. So in order to form a government, you need three more seats. Oh. That means that you need to have someone from the other side either joining you as a whole party or switching sides by leaving their party and joining the Likud. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to have a party, a whole party that will join you, Netanyahu needs to convince either Labour or Blue and White or a Victor Lieberman or the Joint Arab List, which is he's unable to convince them. And this has been going since last April. He wasn't able to convince them. Let's remember, back in April, he had 60 seats. 
and he wasn't able to convince Avigdor Lieberman to join in with his five seats. Mm-hmm. Then in September, he had 55 seats for the bloc, and he wasn't able to convince Gantz to sit under him as the prime minister. Mm-hmm. Today, he has 58 seats, and it seems very unlikely that he will be able to convince either of those parties to do this big step. The reason uh, that he's unable to convince those people to switch sides is because he's facing a trial in two weeks. And they all said their campaign promises was, we're not going to sit in a coalition government with a prime minister that is slated to appear in the court in the morning uh, of as of uh, March 17th. Mm-hmm. So a big reason, you may agree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So who is he relying on to give him that majority? In other words, if he can't convince parties to come his direction, are there individuals that could possibly defect? So immediately after the election results were uh, out on, even on Monday night and on Tuesday morning, Netanyahu's immediate staff, like top staff, said, oh, this is going to be easy busy. We're just going to get, you know, one or two people now, they need actually three, but at first they thought it's only one or two people. Mm-hmm. We're just going to convince them with some uh, agreements. We give them jobs. We'll give them a ministry, maybe. We'll give them some, you know, a, a top assignment. And they will switch sides because no one wants to stay in the opposition for so many years, right? This is the common sense. But since that moment, any of those people who are sort of suspected in switching sides came out and said, they approached me and I have no intention whatsoever to do that. Or they approached me and it's off the table. We already heard from three members of the Knesset from the centrist party, Blue and White, that have accepted or either they've been called by the prime minister, they've been approached, it's actually maybe a better term, Mm -hmm. by the prime minister people. And all of them said out front, you know, no, this is not going to happen. So I would suspect Netanyahu will be looking for a backbench politicians in order to switch sides. Mm -hmm. And he will not be looking for the most prominent people. But it's a tough sell. It's a really tough sell. Nobody wants to sit. I mean, nobody on that side wants to be part of suspected corrupted governments. I mean, he's not he's not convicted yet in corruption, but he definitely has to be in court in in the next two weeks. So you know, the problem remains. Mm-hmm. You said he may rely on backbench politicians to defect and move this forward. Are there particular politicians that you have in mind when you say that? So, as I said, at least three NKs from the blue and white list came out and said today that they were approached. They all got calls from the prime minister, people. There were a lot of talks about Ohuli Levy. She's an NK at uh, the labor it's not really at the Labour. She has her own party. So splitting from the Labour and joining the prime minister probably could have been more easy on her because she doesn't have to suffer sanctions for doing that move. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, uh, the Likud has kind of said, we're offering her the Ministry of Health. Plus, we will make sure that her father, uh, the respectable David Levy, who used to be foreign affairs minister uh, many years ago, we will take care that he's going to be Israel's next 
president as of May of uh, 2021. Now, she came out today, you know, quite slantly and said, we are not to be bought. We are not looking for jobs from the prime minister. I'm not switching sides and so on. So she was on the record saying this is not going to happen. Other politicians from Blue and White also went on record saying, no way, this is not going to happen. I suspect that the Likud will not give up so easily and will try to look for three other people. Having said that, if you need to have one more person, it could have been easier. When he needs to have three more people, it's a bit more problematic because any of them, any of those potential defectors is looking to make sure he's not the first one, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a more difficult situation. Yeah. So what are the options? If he cannot get anyone to come over to his side, what's next? So we could have a fourth election. Okay. I'm saying it as it is very easy and light, but, you know, (laughs) uh, this is the situation here in Israel. Um, There is another option on the table from blue and white, but also the scenario is very, you know, limited. This scenario come out and say, where Netanyahu has 58, the other side has 62. 62, they cannot form a government because this is, you know, partly Lieberman and partly uh, the Joint Arab League. But they are able maybe to change one of the laws and make sure that the prime minister going under a trial will not be granted with the mandate to form a government, Mm -hmm. meaning the law can be changed with a 62 majority to make sure Netanyahu is not the one forming a government. Now, this is pretty harsh because Netanyahu actually won a lot of votes and people on the right wing have already started to cry out and say, this is against the will of the people, this is a coup, you are ruining the democracy. I have to tell you, I don't see this as a viable option right now because I don't see... Lieberman cooperating with Blue and White and cooperating with the Joint Arab List and the Labor and Merit in order to change that specific law. It seems very unlikely okay. at the moment. But if that will happen, let's say, you know, it's far-fetched, but again, if this is the case, then the way is cleared for the Likud to join government without Netanyahu. So in that scenario, even the Likud can build a rotation government where the Likud is the first one to go. Someone else from the Likud will be the prime minister. But I'm speculating here, it's very, very far from reality. Mm -hmm. So what does this mean for Israelis who are relying on a functioning government? Because this kind of continues the pause that's on a functioning government in Israel, right? Uh, We don't have a functioning government as of April 2019. We don't have a budget since last year. The budget is not coming up anytime soon. We, we expect 2019 and 2020 to be sort of a wasted year, no reform. You know, we have the defense budget that needs to be updated. None of the things can happen at the moment. Let's say, for example, with the health crisis around the world, with this world epidemic, Israel's Ministry of Health needs more money, but right. it cannot be done at the moment. It's a, it's a severe situation, really. Yeah. So why do you believe voters in Israel cast their ballots in this way and didn't make a a significant shift in order to get a functioning government? 
Well, you know, the body of the voters, it's not a group of people that you can tell them what to do. People do whatever they believe. They are no, <laughs> they're not going into the polls in a resolution to just do something. They're going to vote for whatever side they support. Mm-hmm. And I think both sides thought that they're going into the polls to make a change, mm-hmm. but neither got their own wish. Uh, it goes to show you that the Israeli people are... You know, severely divided. They cut in half, actually. It's 62-58. So you have a little bit more of a majority who are against the prime minister. People who voted to bring him out of office are 62, as opposed to people who voted for him to stay, which are 58. It's a little bit less. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, He still has a huge support, but not, not enough to form a government as we can see it right now. Yeah. Well, Tal, I wish you luck in covering all of this and in perhaps covering a fourth election and hope that there is a a way forward for Israel. Thank you so much for inviting me and hosting me. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. As you might have guessed from the absence of his voice in this episode, my co-host Sefi Kogan is on vacation this week. But joining us at our Shabbat table is Sarah Tuttle-Singer, the new media editor with the Times of Israel. Sarah, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? So we just had elections in Israel. Third time. Maybe we're heading for a fourth. We don't know yet. But it was a really exciting election day, and I want to tell you why. So my partner is from Jerusalem. He was born there and so were his parents and his grandparents. And in fact, he traces his roots in Jerusalem back to the fourth century. He's from one of the oldest communities in the land. But this was the first time he could vote. Why? Because he is an East Jerusalemite. He's a Christian Palestinian Jerusalemite who has been living on Mount of Olives for a number of years. But he, like most East Jerusalemites are considered residents, not citizens. So when Israel annexed Jerusalem in 1967, they offered the residents of East Jerusalem the ability to apply for citizenship, and some have and some have not. But even those who have have to face a very, very difficult process. And so it took a long time but my partner received his citizenship very recently and his you know his process was incredibly arduous it was almost kafkaesque you now people say all the time well why don't the east jerusalem palestinians just apply for citizenship and become you know israelis and then they can vote in the national elections and and be full citizens because it's really not that simple i mean first of all there's a lot of pressure from within not to apply for israeli citizenship and then even those who do apply, good upstanding residents of Jerusalem who want to be good upstanding citizens of Israel are put through an incredibly rigorous and arduous process. So my partner waited years until he got fed up and then he decided to sue the Ministry of Interior through the high court and he won his case and he won his passport, his Israeli passport and his citizenship and his right to vote. And so he decided that he would vote. But there were so many choices. Oh, and we, he went through them all with me. And he said, Bibi Habibi, he's going to win anyway. I should vote for him. And then Lieberman is the man. Well, you know, at least he is honest about being a racist. And then he thought a little more. And he said, maybe I'll vote for Shas. They take care of the poor, even the poor Arabs. And then finally, Khalas, the system is corrupt anyway. 
There were so many choices in an embattled political landscape. And he almost decided not to vote, but then he remembered that he had waited years for this. He fought all the way to the high court for this, and so he went to vote. Meanwhile, we created quite a stir at the polls. And we get there, he hands over his ID, and he says, this is my first election. Then he goes over to the booth to register with the volunteers, fill out his, um, you know, his name and all of that. And um, the security guard turned to me and he said, why is it his first election? Where is he from? And I, I told the security guard, well, he's from Jerusalem. Well, why couldn't he vote? The security guard asked, because he isn't Jewish, I answered. But he lives in Jerusalem. He's a Jerusalemite. He should be allowed to vote, the guard says. Well, our government only lets citizens vote. And unless you're Jewish, if you're from East Jerusalem, you aren't considered a citizen unless you apply for citizenship. And even then, they don't grant it to everyone, and it's a very difficult process. Well, that's stupid, the guard said. He should be allowed to vote if he was born anywhere in Jerusalem. United Jerusalem. I mean, he waved his fist in the air. Anyway, by this time, there were a dozen people assembled in line. There was a woman with long, red curly hair and a peace sign tattoo and an ultra-Orthodox man with his grandchildren at his side and an Ethiopian Israeli soldier with a yarmulke. And the guard turned to them and he said, it's his first time voting. He just got a citizenship. He's from East Jerusalem. The guard was very proud. Well, kola kavod, all the respect, the ultra-Orthodox man said. Congratulations, the soldier said. Maybe we'll have good luck and finally get a government, the woman with the red curls said. Anyway, I watched my partner take his envelope and walk to the big blue box, and we all waited. A minute passed, and then two minutes, and then three. Wow, he takes it so seriously, the guard said. After a minute, and then another, and then from behind the blue box, I heard, Hala, Sarah, what are these letters? So here's the thing about voting. The ballots aren't always clear. Each party gets letters assigned to it, and they don't always make sense unless you're reversed in the minutia of Israeli politics. And even then, here are three letters for you. WTF. Sarah, I don't want to vote for Bibi Habibi. Where's the other guy? My partner shouted. The voting monitors laughed, and one said, okay, you can leave your envelope and come outside, and she can explain to you which party is which. And so that's what he did. The security guard gave him a pen so he could write down the letters on his hand. Are you sure it's not Shas or Lieberman? My partner asked. Yes, everyone said. I wish, one of the people in line added. All the respect, Kolakovod, another person said, and patted him on the back. You know, in a country deeply fractured and painfully cleaved, where we are too often pitted against one another, we were united together at that polling station in that moment, and it was sweet. In a country where everyone hates waiting, people waited for him. And not only did they wait, they waited patiently, and they even smiled. After all, he had been waiting his whole life to do what he should have been allowed to do from the beginning. So he cast his ballot, and we went out for ice cream, and it was a great day. How's by you, Manya? Oh, that sounds lovely, Sarah. And, and hopefully that waiting in line, that particular experience of waiting in line, will move the country forward, right? <laughs> That's what it's all about. So, Sarah, we will be slurping chicken soup this week at our Shabbat table because, in case you can't tell, I have a cold. I have children. They sneeze and they wheeze in varying degrees all the time, and, well, so do I. But as we know, countries are on high alert over an increasingly common cold known as coronavirus. 
Conferences have been canceled. Vacations have been postponed. Even religious rituals have been hampered by the virus. Rabbis in Israel have told congregants to stay away from synagogues and avoid kissing each other and religious items. And similar restrictions have been put in place in churches here in the U.S. regarding communion. And Saudi Arabia has halted travel to Mecca. So the virus also has created an every-woman-for-herself approach. Stores are selling out of hand sanitizer and face masks, and healthy people are hoarding other groceries and supplies in order to isolate themselves from the world. Even people who aren't sick are, are preparing for the worst. So, you know, it's almost like every man for himself turning inward. It sounds a lot like today's politics. Certainly not the community of conscience we as a nation aspire to be. But it's also not what the doctor ordered. The Center for Disease Control released a list of ways to fight back the spread of the disease. Their guidance includes cultivating community and thinking of others. Instead of rushing out and emptying the store shelves of basic necessities, get to know your neighbors, exchange phone numbers, find out who in your vicinity is particularly vulnerable. As one writer pointed out, it is a very Jewish approach. We're strongest when we stand together. In order to protect ourselves and our community, we have to think of others. So wash your hands with soap and water or slather them with sanitizer and stay home when you're sick. Wait, did did I just say, yep, yep, I did. Stay home when you're sick. I did actually utter that hypocrisy. And for that, I am so very sorry. But I fell prey to what so many of us have fooled ourselves into thinking, that somehow our work is so important that we need to share our germs to get it done. And now I'm sitting at the mic as our glassy-eyed producer glares at me through the studio window because, well, I made her sick. And Gukong, I am so sorry. (laughs) But what's most important, and what I will be reminding my kids at the Shabbat table, is that we share this world with other people. And the price we sometimes pay for that is, well, staying home even when there's work to be done. Because guaranteed, someone else can probably figure out how to do it, or it will still be there when you get back. And just because you're always sick doesn't mean you carry on with business as usual. This time is different. It has to be. So, as I also tell my kids, please, listeners, learn from my mistake and don't repeat it. Continue to stock up on what you need, not more. Keep washing your hands and stay home if you have the sniffles. Take a break, get well, and if you're still healthy, try to avoid people like me and stay that way. So, Shabbat Shalom. (laughs) Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 